0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, and I am your host here at The Stacks. Welcome back. I'm very excited this week. I am joined by my guest, Sarah Fong. We discussed books a ton last week. So if you've yet to listen to episode three, go back, listen. Sarah has some amazing recommendations for you. This week, she and I will be discussing Jessamyn Ward's book, Men We Reaped. This book is a memoir. It tells the story of Ward's life and also the story of five men that she knew growing up and throughout her early adulthood who all passed away from separate things, but she draws some interesting parallels and conclusions about their lives and the lives of many other black men in America. Um, If you've yet to read the book, I highly suggest that you pause this episode You go read it, and then you come back and talk with Sarah and I. We will be here, and this book is not to be missed. And of course, last but not least, make sure you are subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you do happen to listen on iTunes, we would so appreciate your support by reviewing and rating us. Also, tell your friends, tell your book club, tell your family. We're trying to get the word out about the stack, so anything you can do would be greatly appreciated. And now, let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome back to The Stacks. I'm Tracy Thomas, and I'm here again with Sarah Fong. Um, we are discussing today our Stacks book club pick, which is Men We Reaped by Jessmine Ward. Um, it is her 2013 memoir about her her life and her upbringing in rural Mississippi in a town called DeLille, Mississippi. Um, and it tells a story not just of her life, but the life or the death of five men um, that she grew up with or knew um, over the course of a really short time, just four years. And before I say anything else, let me just remind you, there are spoilers on this episode. So if you are planning to read this book and you don't want to know the spoilers of Jasmine's life, please pause and come back later and we'll still be here and we'll st- you'll have this whole conversation to look forward to. Um, okay. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Tracy. <laughs> How are you? Good. How are you? I'm really excited today to talk about this book. I really liked this book. So before we really dive in, what were your kind of initial impressions or thoughts about it?
1: Yeah. I think it's a beautiful book. I think it's really important. Um, as you were sort of mentioning last week, I think that Jasmine does a beautiful job of looking at a very small slice of her own life. Um, and sort of asking us to think about how this piece of her life is connected to a much larger history. Um, and I think she did a beautiful job of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I felt like as soon as I picked up the book, I read like five pages and I was like, Oh, I'm super duper here for this. Um, so it was pretty much – I felt like instantly connected to her, which is interesting for me because I read Sing, Unburied Sing, which is her fiction book she wrote last year, and I was not in. Mm. So when I picked up the book, like when we decided to do this book, I was like, okay, I want to read it, but I'm also kind of nervous. Um, so I was happy it worked out that way. Um, so like I said before, the book is about her life and um, the death of five young I mean, I think it ranges from like 19 to 26, I think is the eldest Mm -hmm. uh, black men who die in this rural community um, in the south of Mississippi, kind of right on the Gulf Coast. Um, So, you know, this book really touches on some major issues um, in the black community. And one of the things that I think is really important just to talk about from the beginning is that, you know, the death of black men um, as a systemic problem, mm-hmm. um, how did you feel about like kind of the way that she brought that in like early? I know um actually let me backtrack a second before Mm -hmm. we even dive into that. Let me just talk about how the book is written. Cause I think that's important to understand if you haven't read the book yet, um, this will help you even though, like I said, there's going to be spoilers. Um, But if you have read the book, I think this is something that's really powerful. She writes the book in both directions. So she starts at her birth or even before her birth in the seventies with her family and she tells her own personal story from beginning to end. She tells the story of the five men from end to beginning. So the most recent death, the death in 2004 is the first death um, that we hear about, which is the death of Roger. And then the last death we hear about is Joshua, who's her brother, and that takes place in 2000. So the book is interchangeably moving between uh, chronological and then reverse chronological. Mm -hmm. So how how did that work for you?
1: Yeah, I think it took me a little bit to get oriented to the book. Mm -hmm. she explains you know she says explicitly in the beginning that that is how the book is organized and it took me a little while to sort of be able to consistently locate myself in her life you know as I'm reading each chapter and to to figure out okay here's the point in her life where we are right now it's a little bit disorienting at first but I think that um, you know after a chapter or two I got used to it and then I think it it's an interesting way of trying to tell this story right of setting up Um, the history of the place of Dalil and also you know the story of her family and then also moving through these different deaths that she experienced and sort of her and the way that those shaped her life I think that this was an interesting way to sort of organize the book and um, brings you into I think what for me sort of felt like the messiness of life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and the way that um in our own lives, experiences from our childhood, you know, are woven into experiences from college or our young adult lives and the way that, um, these different moments in our lives sort of bleed together into, um, a narrative that does move across time in in sort of strange ways. I think that that actually is sort of reflective of how we probably
0: experience our own Mm -hmm. memories. Totally. Yeah, I agree. And I think like practically, um, that's the only way you could tell she could tell mm-hmm. her story because her brother's death um is so pivotal in her life that to lead off with it it would have just been like this is too much too soon and then by the time you got to the last death it would have been like okay but we already experienced this like devastating blow to your life mm-hmm. and of course like the pile on is important but Joshua's death coming at the end really like ex- really like explodes for me at the end of the book, like it really felt like a loss by the time we got to know her and him going forward. Mm-hmm. And then one of the other things I liked about it is trying to figure out who was still alive and like seeing characters like CJ, who is the the middle death. So he's the third death from either direction, um, pop up mm-hmm. in, they're all out together, you know, and then he doesn't pop up later because he's already died by the time Raj dies or like kind of trying to piece that together was an interesting thought activity. I felt, I don't know. I liked it. Um, So yeah. So at the end of, or so the end chronologically, but the beginning of the book, the first death we hear about is Raj, who is um, a young, black guy who's just kind of a friend and kind of runs in the crew of her and her sisters and what used to be a larger group of boys but by the time we get to him a lot of them have died um and after he dies one of one of uh ex-boyfriends says they're picking us off one by one and this moment in the book kind of becomes uh almost like her launch pad Mm -hmm. for the rest of the book um and she questions who exactly is the they that are doing the picking mm-hmm. or or and who is the us almost as well is, is she part of the us is the us specifically the black men is the us the town you know um so I'd love to hear what you kind of thought about that moment,
1: yeah, I agree with you that that's a really pivotal moment, and it's a moment where she sets up what I think is the argument of the book. um the question is about right why why Roger has died, why these other four individuals have died, and the question of who they are, right? And I think that um, it's important to know that Roger dies of a heart attack, right? Roger was not um, killed by another person. He was not, you know, didn't die a death at the hands of another individual, right? And yet, you know, this friend is is still suggesting that there's somebody who or some force that has some responsibility in Roger's death. And I think that that is uh, what Jessmine Ward is trying to get at here is trying mm-hmm. to get us to, to, she's asking the question, and she, by the end of the book, is sort of answering that question that there are structures, social structures, economic structures, political practices, you know historical patterns that set up conditions that facilitate the death of, in this case, black men. And I think that you know, in this question of who they are um, she's trying to point to that right to say that these are not accidental deaths these are not random deaths that they're that there are forces that we can actually trace in a way and say that these are the things that make it more likely that you know black men will die in you know these various ways and i think something that really stuck out to me is that um you know we live in a time right now where Um, the death of black men and black women at the hands of the police is, you know, is a really hot topic of conversation where gun violence in general is -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that someone might, without having read this book, might think that that's what this book is about, that it's about gun violence. And there's actually only one death here that is,
0: um, the result of gun violence. Well, one and a half. One and a half. One is a suicide. Yes, right. Um, it's actually interesting that you say that. I was on Goodreads after I read the book, just kind of looking at what people said, and I saw a woman who had commented, mm. I was really worried. I didn't really want to read this book because I didn't want to read a book about black-on-black crime, mm. and because that's where she thought that the book was going. And really, the, there is only one instance of black-on-black crime, and that right. is the shooting death you were talking about, right. um, of DeMond, who um, is shot we don't know by who or mm-hmm. for what necessarily she posits it could be because he was going to testify against someone, mm-hmm. but it's un- it 's an unsolved murder right. um but it's interesting that yeah, when you hear about the book and the five deaths, you think oh i'm sure it's gang violence right. or i'm sure it's a drug deal gone wrong or something like that and it and it's more subtle it is. the deaths are more subtle mm. um and also the deaths are two thousand to two thousand and four, which is was not a time of police violence because there weren't the video cameras. Obviously there was police violence Mm -hmm. and there were police shootings, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't a hot topic issue. So going back and reading this book in 2018, you know, post Trayvon Martin, post, um, uh, Alton Sterling, post Mm -hmm. Philando Castile, post Sandra Bland, post, 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 you know, it's hard to remember a time when that wasn't, Mm -hmm the thing.
1: Right. When that wasn't the only way to understand the sort of disproportionate deaths of black people in the United States. And, you know, here we have a tech, a, a book that's talking about a death by heart attack, a death by suicide, as you mentioned, two that are, you know, related to, you know, car crashes. Right. And so she's, she's showing us that there are many ways and many pathways by which um, black life is devalued or diminished or made, you know, tenuous and precarious that mm-hmm. are not the sort of sensational story of gun violence in its many forms. Right. And that's not to say that gun violence is not important. You know, I, we are having conversations that need to be had. Right. But I think Jessmine is reminding us that we also need to think about the other ways that black lives are devalued. Right. Um, and she's telling us, you know, some very particular stories about how that has happened in her life.
0: One of the things that this just brought up is, so CJ, who's the third fellow who dies, who's actually her cousin and which not in a weird way, but in a true way is, was also the boyfriend of her sister, her, her babiest sister, um, Shireen. And he dies in a car accident. That is not with another vehicle, but was actually with a train. And what ends up happening is the lights and the arm on the train crossing signal don't work. Mm -hmm. And so they don't see that there is a train or that they're in danger and they run into the train or the train runs into that. There's an accident. Um, And she points to that as a clear indication of the value, the lack of value on black lives, because in this poor rural black town, they didn't bother to fix the train crossing. Right. And so, you know, it's not necessarily a police officer or a murder, but it is a form of murder by the state because it's a neglect yeah. of a group of people. And, you know, she categorizes all of the deaths as violent deaths. And, you know, a heart attack is or isn't violent. I mean, it's violent to you when it's happening, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's it's a drug-induced heart attack or he, he had uh, – Raj had had – cocaine and it wasn't an overdose. It was a heart attack. And he'd had heart disease in his family, which heart disease is one of the number one killers of black people. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, she categorizes them all as violent deaths, which, which is interesting, especially when you think about Raj, um, as, as a heart attack. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, I mean, it's heavy stuff and she does a great job of kind of talking about how all of these deaths play into this systemic, oppression and you know I don't I don't want to say never I'm not going to say the word that I don't want to (laughs) say um but Raj his his drug addiction he's addicted to cocaine or he's a cocaine user she doesn't say addicted but it does become a very uh substance abuse becomes a very prominent thing and Raj is the last person chronologically to die so he watches his four friends companions go go and the women and the men in his life who are alive he watches them also struggle with all of these deaths before he ultimately Mm -hmm. you know falls and and it brings up the substance abuse that is rampant in in the book not necessarily in the community but in her community in her world she drinks a ton there's a lot of smoking of weed there's a Mm -hmm. lot of drinking there's some cocaine use um, by a few people and and i find that really fascinating because we, we are conditioned and we are told that drug addiction is a disease, right? Or substance addiction is a disease. And that's specifically true in the white community. Um, when we talk about, you know, uh, opioid addiction mm-hmm. and that, you know, our current president has been putting a lot of effort into the opioid addiction and that this is something that afflicts uh, a predominantly white community, mm-hmm. but when it's crack cocaine, you know it's criminalized and this book you know really brings it to the front forefront that drug addiction is something that is therapeutic for all people it doesn't matter who mm-hmm. you are and she really personalizes that in the black community which i which i really appreciate
1: yeah i wanted to ask you about that i think um you know she ties that to questions of like mental health you know depression um and i you know curious about your thoughts on that about how she sort of connects Um, these sort of what she describes as systemic problems of, you know, chronic underemployment, um, lack of access to quality education or being pushed out of, you know, schooling at a young age. So she connects drug addiction to these sort of structural issues, but then she also ties them to questions of mental health. And I was, you know, I know that's something you were interested in in talking about.
0: Yeah, for sure. She, I mean, she talks, so, so the fourth, The fourth gentleman who dies, who is uh, Ronald, he's the one who commits suicide. And in that section, she really talks about depression in black males. Um, Black males are the least likely, less likely than Latino men um, to be diagnosed or treated for depression and she says you know from the research that's been done on these small sample sizes that that that, that depression is mostly drawn from racism poverty and violence mm-hmm. that that's what leads to depression in black men and in black women but she's specifically focusing on black men and that she posits that this left untreated, which it mostly is in the black community, leads leaves black men to be vulnerable to homelessness, substance abuse, homicide, suicide, and then also incarceration, which I thought was really interesting Um, because you think of, you know, incarceration, you've done something wrong, you go to jail, and that maybe that's actually a result of mental health, you know, and and again, that's something that we don't often give black people the, you know, room to experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we talk about these mass shootings and we're talking about the lone wolf, the white man, I never would have seen it coming. You know, he had mental health health issues. But I've never really heard the conversation of all of these black men that we're throwing in jail, no one's like, oh, they have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It's that they're criminals or they're drug dealers or they're thugs or they're gangsters or they're bad dudes or whatever, you know? So it's interesting that she draws depression directly to incarceration. Um, and she even says suicide in black men is twice as likely as it is in black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just find some of these statistics and some of the stuff that she brings up about depression and mental health in black in the black community to be really, I mean, disheartening and it's really it's sad to know that we have all this research that goes into mental health and not enough. But we have it, and then it's not being dispersed evenly among communities. And that again taps back into the systemic, you know, um, attack on on the black community that she talks about. And it and I just want to be really clear: it's not just black people who experience these, you know, systemic, underfunded, underutilized, underappreciated public state sanctioned, right. whatever it is, that it it is in many other communities of color and marginalized communities, the LGBT community, the Latinx community, the Asian community, the Muslim community, like it's everywhere. But this book focuses on that. So we're going to focus on that. Right. I just want to disclaim because I don't, this is a, this is not an exclusively black experience, but her book is an exclusive, exclusively black experience. So.
1: Yeah. And I think just to, you know, to, to think, really specifically about, you know, her position, right? She's a, and she makes it very clear throughout the text. She is a black woman who grew up in a poor rural community, right? And I think that that sort of, um, she is able to draw together those sort of various strands of her identity and her social position as a woman, as a black woman, as a black woman who grew up in a poor community and to talk about what that means for her, and so like you're saying, you know, there probably are many, many other stories like this. And mm-hmm. in fact, we know that there are, mm-hmm. this is just the one that, you know, we have in front of us and it, and it helps us to understand, I think the way that these sort of like various, um, axes of, of difference, right. Is like how I would put that, right. She is a woman, she is black, she's grown up poor, um, and in different ways these play out in her life. So in the text, you know, she talks about being, um, a poor, you know, growing up in a poor family, her mother is a domestic worker for uh, the rich families of students that she goes to
0: school with. Well, and how does she even get to school? Right.
1: She gets to, (laughs) she gets to go to this school because her mother works for this wealthy family and she's, you know, her mother tells her employer that her daughter is struggling in school and he offers to pay for her to go to a private school, right? So she has this amazing opportunity, but that very opportunity comes out of the fact that she comes from a poor family where her mother is, you know, the primary breadwinner and caretaker of her, um, she and her siblings, even though her father is in her life, you know, her mother is the primary caretaker. And so, you know, her opportunities come, you know, sort of ironically out of the fact of her, her poverty. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, just to bring it back to my, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is that she does a really amazing job of showing us how this particular social position of being a poor black woman in the rural South shapes her life, right? And I think it's something that should be a lesson to all of us to, to sort of examine those questions in our life, right? We all have a particular, uh, you know gender position we have a particular sexual orientation a particular class status a particular racial identity ethnic background whatever and we all are shaped by the the way that those things are positioned mm. within mm-hmm. social you know within the u.s society or political right. structure right and so she says this is what it's like for me in, mm-hmm. in the position that i grow up in but i think it's it's a lesson to all of us that we need to think about how do our own social positions across these various, you know, categories shape how we live our lives. Right. Right. I think it's easy to say, Oh, poor people of color are affected by the structures mm-hmm. of their lives. Mm-hmm. And to sort of talk about how that can be disempowering. Um, and she also talks about how it's empowering. And I think we'll get to yeah. that later, but um, even the more privileged among us also need to think about that, right. How their, how our, or their, um social position provides privilege and access to things that are denied to others right so right. it's like we all need to think about how we are located in the world right and how that shapes our life experience
0: right and this book does such a good job of that and and then in the reverse she also does amazing an amazing job of saying like i'm specifically this small not small i am this specific one woman and this is my specific story and that yet still this is a problem Or these issues affect people of other Black people, other Black men, in other places. Black men in Los Angeles. I mean, when I read this book, um, we I mentioned last week that Sarah and I grew up together. We've known each other since we were about sixteen. So it's getting getting to be a lot of years. (laughs) It's it's getting to be more than fifteen years ish. Yeah, ish. I guess. Oh my god. More than half our lives. More than half our lives almost. Um, But we grew up. we have another friend that we share and, and we grew up running around with a lot of boys. Like we had a lot of guy friends, Sarah had a crew from her high school into we different schools, but, and then as we got older, I have an older brother and we started running around with his crew also. And I couldn't help but think that like, I'm just so grateful this wasn't my story, but it could have been, mm-hmm. you know, I'm half black. Um, but I present black, like, you know, I'm, I, am I, there's not a lot of ambigu- ambiguity, in, in how I look and who I am. And so, you know, it could have just as easily been our story, even though I've never been to rural Mississippi. I've never even been to Mississippi. Like I, we grew up in the Bay area, which is a very affluent place. And, you know, for the most part, but even compared, even the poorest parts of Oakland and Berkeley mm-hmm. are much more wealthy than the poorest parts of DeLille, Mississippi. Right. Mm-hmm. But like that that story happens everywhere. And she does a great job of kind of keeping it teeny tiny and also blowing it up and and reminding you that it's not just her, that it's not just the South, which I feel like has become something that is so prevalent. When we talk about racism, like oh that's the South, and nobody wants to talk about how Northern schools are more segregated than Southern schools, or you know I live in LA and LA is one of the most segregated cities in the country, and you know you never hear that. No one's like oh LA that bastion for racial segregation. Like no, everybody thinks LA is like you know the movies and that it is, and that's where it's segregated too. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I, I appreciate her work on in in making it you know micro and macro. The other thing that you kind of touched on, which I think is crucial to this book, and you know, the book is titled Men We Reap. So obviously men are important, but who is left when the men are killed? Like who is telling this story, Um, you know, if you've seen Hamilton – who lives who dies who tells our story it's the refrain from the show and it feels right you know she's she is telling the story of these five men she is telling the story of her mother and she is telling the story of her sisters and her grandmother and the women in her life and her community and and i think that that's important like how did you feel about the matriarch side of all of this
1: yeah i thought that that was really central and i think in the last chapter, the last few pages of the book, there are a few passages where she really drives that point home and says, you know, she credits her mother for her ability to write this book at all Mm -hmm. and her ability to bear witness to this history. Um, and she, you know, she sort of reflects back on the difficulties of her mom's life of, you know, being at times a single mother of being always a working mother, raising, um, you know, a family of kids and, and these are things which can and should be understood as um, in some ways, disem- you know, elements of her disempowerment in, mm-hmm. you know, American society. Yeah. But she also says these are the things that, you know, that enabled her mother's greatest gifts, right? right. So she she insists that even in the sort of um, disempowerment that she's describing through joblessness, lack of education, um, And the like, she also insists that in her life, and I think this is, you know, extends out to many other, many other people and to many other places that the black women in her life have been this sort of um, continuous source of strength of, um, you know, of empowerment, despite, you know, these elements of disempowerment. And so I think that the women in this story, even though they are not centered in the title of the book, are in are at the core.
0: Right. They drive the story. Yeah. And there's even a part where she talks about, um, it's very early on and she talks about how, when it comes to the men, all that's left are the children and the very few elderly, just like war. Mm -hmm. And she, she makes the point to compare that to war. And, you know, that's saying something that her community and her life, she experiences the existence of men as only children and the elderly, mm-hmm. and very few who make it there. Um, this is a little off topic, but a few weeks ago, there was this episode of Blackish where uh, Dre's father makes it to 65, and they throw a party, and it's like this huge thing, and the father keeps joking that he's the, the oldest living black man. <laughs> And he's like, name, name another black man who's older than me. And they like, they can't, you know, they can't quote unquote. Um, But when I started to think about it, I was like, yo, like you could name like Morgan Freeman, like Mm. you could name, you can name some, but it's disproportionate. Like when I think about like famous white men over 65, I feel like the list is insane. And then when you start to think about famous black men over 65, it's like Morgan Freeman, Danny Glover, like O.J. Simpson, like the list is not that long, you know. And and that that is real in her world yeah. and that is real in our world and it's something that like is is real enough that like Blackish is talking about it, mm-hmm. which if you don't watch Blackish, it is unbelievably good and I live for that show and you should and they talk about things that are really important and, and in a great way. Um but yeah, I think I think that the idea of making it to adulthood and surviving to your 60s as a black man is something that is is atypical, which right. which I mean that's kind of what this book is about.
1: Right. You know. And it and I think what she points to in that um you know, in, that in the face of these five deaths in particular, but you know, the sort of larger pattern of, of the death of black men is that it's, it is black women who, um, make life possible Mm -hmm. that make that Mm -hmm. continue to insist on a livable life. Um, you know, in the face of death who insist on, and, you know, sort of by the power of their very, you know, hands and bodies, like hold the family together and hold the community together. And, um, I think that that's really, really important, um, that, you know, that, 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 that story is told. And I think, you know, to the point about storytelling, I think that with this book, Jessamyn Ward is trying to bear witness to both of those experiences, right? right? To the experience of the death of black men and to the experience of black women who continue to live and, you know, make life possible in those conditions, Right. right? And so this sort of like bearing witness to these stories, I think is, um, as much as she's trying to locate these stories within a sort of structural context and within a historical context, she also is just asserting that the story is worth telling and that the story has to be told.
0: Right. And we touched on this a little bit that she gets to go to this white high school because her mother's employer funds her education. And then eventually she ends up at Stanford where she does undergraduate and then also gets a master's. Um, And you know it is not lost on me that her story is the story that is able to be told because that because she was able to leave mm-hmm. and because she was able to get this education um and that how many of these stories are there, right? How many women have these stories, and it's i mean I'm forever grateful that she was able to tell this story because it's important and she is bearing witness to a very 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 real thing. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about her relationship to home? Because she does leave, and I think a lot of people would say, leave that death town. Like, get out of there. Go, girl. Like, Molly, you in danger, girl. <laughs> um, but, you know, she comes back. Yeah. And she talks about it. She says she comes back every holiday. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she doesn't just, like, come back because she doesn't have anywhere else to be. Like, she makes a choice to come back. So how did you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I thought that was really powerful. And you're right. She, she talks about it throughout the book about how she had to come home. She had to come home, and it's not because anyone was telling her she needed to come home or because there was necessarily something she had to do at home, but she felt this continuous pull to come home. And I thought that that was really striking because she is in the midst of telling this story about economic deprivation and, you know, um, economic inopportunities and all of these things and these stories about death where one might say, you know, this is a bad place that mm-hmm. anyone would, you know, be wise to get out of. She continuously says, "I wanted to go home. I had to go home. Like I needed to be there." And I think that's really profound. You know, I think what I understood her to be saying is that in this space that is marked by violence, both physical, you know, metaphorical, structural, mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. is saying that there are lives here that are important. There are lives here that are worthy. Mm. There are lives here that I am a part of and that are a part of me. Um, And that she, even as she's presenting us with this sort of stark picture of life in Delil, she's also saying there's something beautiful and valuable and fulfilling there, right? Mm -hmm. So she will not let us as the reader fall into this trap of saying that this is a bad place. This is a bad place. And it's just the place. And it's just, yeah, there's nothing redeemable, redeemable. here, right? right. Like totally. she she won't let us have right. that.
0: And even in her other books, um, I've not read her first book, but in, I know that in uh, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied, Sing, they both take place in a fictional town called Sav- Bois Sauvage, which is DeLille essentially, mm. but the, her books, she comes back to DeLille physically she teaches in at Tulane I believe and also maybe in in Mississippi somewhere um but she also comes back to the place in her work she comes back to the place physically throughout her life like this place has a pull on her I've heard her in an interview she talks about like what she loves about about home and why she goes back and like it's not just the place and the people and that it's her home but also like the air the humidity like the feeling that that Just like anyone else's home, that this place is real and full and conflicted, but real and important and powerful and meaningful and all of those things that you associate, you know, and, and weirdly, even though this book kind of turns it on its head, it is a safe place for her. might not be a safe place for us, but like, it's a safe place for her. But that's how I feel about Oakland. Mm -hmm. People talk so much shit on Oakland, but it's like, okay you know, there's bad shit everywhere. There's bad people everywhere. There's danger everywhere. But from that also comes a power and a strength of the people. Right. And, And, you know, the vibrancy of her world. mm
1: -hmm. Right. She's telling a story about a place that is shaped by a lot of violence. Um, And she says, you know, that even in this place that some might read as damaged or um, pathological, even Mm -hmm, if you want to like really start, you know, throwing these judgmental terms on places, she says, this is a place that matters, right? Like that. It doesn't, it's not only the lives that are perfect and clean and easy that, that have value, right? Right. She says even in the messiness of Delil and even in the heartache that she faces there, that this is a place that needs to be seen, Right.
0: No, it's so true. Um, I want to jump topics just a little bit because I think we would be really remiss not to talk about Joshua's death Yes, because that, I mean, really is in interviews that I've heard her talk about. She says that he, his death is the reason she became a writer up until that point. She had gotten her MFA, um, at Stanford, but it was not in writing. She got her, she eventually got it at, um, university of Michigan, um, creative writing, after Joshua's death, but that that was a catalyst for her to become a writer, which also comes up throughout the book. And it's great how she talks about it, uh, about her writing and writing these characters who are from her life, which eventually lead to characters that we know and love from her other books. But um, Joshua's death is. I want to read just a small passage about it. He dies in a car accident from um, – it's a drunk driver hits him. It's a white man in his 40s who's driving, she says, 80 miles an hour. Um, he hits Joshua's car. It sends Joshua's car like into a lawn. Into, it's a whole thing. The other man's car ends up on the street. It's a terrible situation. But she talks about the momentum of his death, um, both the momentum of the car – well, I'll just read the quote. She says, um, Josh pressed his brakes by instinct, leaving black rubber – Smeared across the road, but there was so much momentum, so many bodies and cars and histories and pressures moving all at once that my brother could not stop his car. And it's in that moment for me when I read that that I was like, oh shit, that's the thing that it's not just his car, but it's all the cars, it's all the people, it's all the histories, it's the black folks and the white folks in this rural, mixed, you know, southern town and it's the force not just of the 80 miles per hour but it's the force of all of this that it it hit me I really like I had to read that passage a few times because I thought damn like that's the thing yeah you know that that maybe that's the they right like that it's not just even though for her it's just her brother she also sees it's not just him um and then You know, I think it's important, especially talking about where we were earlier talking about uh, police officers and police violence, is that the man who killed Joshua, um, he was only um, convicted of, you know, reckless endangerment. um, And he received five years but he only served a very small portion of that and was supposed to pay the family $14,000 and some change and paid $0. And that kind of is another moment in the book where she really drives home the point of like, what is the value of black lives? What are our value to the world? Obviously, she senses the value in these mm-hmm. people and her brother and her family. and But then, you know, how do they see us? And so Josh's death not only is important to her, but it also really ties the book together because now we've gone through these other four deaths and we end at this very powerful death that is the turning point in her life. And she refers to it as such um, as she inter- the introduction to his death is her saying, you know, after this and after the dog accident and after my father left and after this, but then before. And she says, before Roger, before Damond, before CJ, before Ronald, this thing happened and it was always this, 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 this. Um, I don't really have a question about it, but I just kind of wanted to know how, how, how that part affected you and if you felt like in the telling of the story that it, it worked, right? Yeah,
1: I do. I think you're right. And I think it goes back to your earlier point about the way that the book is organized, right? That we end with Joshua's death even though for her, Joshua's death was the beginning of this series of deaths. Um, But this is the story for her that I think allows her to really drive home her point about why death accumulates in her life Mm -hmm. and why it accumulates in DeLille, right? Why the force of the car couldn't be stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, you know, in this story that I think we really come to understand what these deaths, this series of deaths mean for her. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's like you said, it's it's a turning point for her. And it's it's the beginning of what she describes throughout the book as sort of her own journey to understanding how these series of violent deaths are part of a larger history and part of a larger set of social structures, right? You There are moments throughout the book where she sort of says – things like, you know, um, I can't remember if it was CJ or, um, Roger, but, you know, she says, you know, I, I judged them for using Coke. Right. Right. And she says, I didn't, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says something along the lines of like, I didn't understand that this was like a response to something
0: bigger. And that's that substance abuse.
1: Yeah. And so there are moments throughout the book where I think she expresses and shows us like her own sort of development around how to understand these deaths and to see them not as sort of um, isolated incidents and not to see them as as only the result of individual choice or mm-hmm. personal responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. these ideas that we, I think, in American society draw on a lot to explain how and why things happen in people's lives. I think we like to think that we are... Um, the sole agents of our own life, right? right? Like that we're the only people who have an impact on, on the course that our life takes, um, which is not
0: true. Right. You know,
1: like I was saying earlier, I think that we are all, um, you know, certain avenues are opened or closed to us, you know, by virtue of our position in society. Mm -hmm. And she is expressing throughout this text, her sort of developing understanding of that. And she writes through that. And I, I would imagine that part of that comes, part of that developing understanding maybe comes through the fact that she is a writer, right? Mm. She says in this text that, um, there's a moment in this text where she says that this writing, this was part of her own process of understanding, Right. right? She's not writing this just so that we as the reader can understand. Right. She's
0: making sense. Yeah.
1: She's making sense for herself. And I think that that's really interesting because you see her moving from this sort of idea that, you know, we all make our own decisions and, you know, perhaps our lives are guided only by our own decisions. To this understanding, which she drives home in the passage you just read about Joshua, mm-hmm. that there are forces at play in our lives that we actually don't control. Right. Um, that we maybe can influence one way or another. And, and I don't say this to say that you know we are all just victims of circumstance. That's right. certainly not the case. But um, I think in that moment at the end of the text, talking about Joshua, you really see her drive home her her, the understanding she's developed about why these deaths occur in succession, why they occur in these particular circumstances. And, um, I think that it's, it's a really sort of beautiful way of showing her development as an individual, Mm -hmm. as a thinker, as Mm -hmm. a writer, and the way that these deaths have forced her to Mm -hmm. look at the world, um, with a critical eye.
0: Right. Um, also this is, this part of the book is where she kind of dives into her grief a little bit. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on her grief because I think grief is so specific to humans in their own way, but she does talk about her grief in a really beautiful and powerful way. And, and she grapples with it. And I think that, you know, that's really hard and it goes to the bigger point that she really is vulnerable in this book in some ways that are, I've never seen an author really deal with Um, and I appreciate it and I think that's like for me what made the book kind of special and the other thing this is like normally I would never talk about this I'm not the kind of person who talks about this So this is a total disclaimer the acknowledgments in this book I don't know if you read the acknowledgments they're insanely delicious and amazing and beautiful and I've never read an acknowledgement in a book before and been like yo The way that she acknowledges the people who helped her make this book possible, even like her writing group, which is like, normally when I get to the part where it's like, am I agent and whatever? But I was like, yo, like, she's, she's an amazing, she's an amazing writer. Like she's really crafted something so beautiful that all the way through the acknowledge, I was like, can she acknowledge a few more people? Like, please? Like, what about like the postman? Like, I need a little acknowledgement, but it all just, I think it's just like the authenticity of her story. Um, I do want to wrap up on one more little thing. Um, I found out that Lee Daniels, who is the director of, um, the Butler, Precious, um, I don't know, he's worked on Empire, he's a writer, et cetera, et cetera, um, is bought the rights for this, for a film, um, and a TV show. Um, and what do you think? Would you watch it? Do you think it'll be good?
1: Yeah, I think that's a tough one. Um, I could see a lot of ways that this could go wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When I found it out, I was literally like, please, I hope it never gets made.
1: Yeah. I think what you're saying is she has crafted this story in a really particular way mm-hmm. and in a way that is so deeply personal, right? Like you mm-hmm. said, all the way through the acknowledgements, it's in the acknowledgements, right? She's, she's thanking her family members, right? For helping her to do the research necessary to write this book and, and to retell their own memories. Cause you know, all of her family members figure very prominently in these stories. And so mm-hmm. There's something so deeply personal, and, and this book comes out of not only Jessmine's experiences, but the experiences of many members of her family and community, mm-hmm. and it seems based on her acknowledgments that they were all actually very involved mm-hmm. in the writing of this mm-hmm. book, and I can just imagine that then trying to take something that's so beautifully and intentionally crafted and putting it in the hands of somebody else who yeah. has not lived these particular experiences right. even though perhaps lee daniels or whoever yeah. involved in this would would have had similar experiences maybe but this is not their
0: story this is not and their so story.
1: i i feel anxious I do about too. the idea. when i found out i was like think?
0: i'm not into it i'm not into it i just I, it, in addition to what you're saying i totally agree with you but also like i don't necessarily think that film or television as a medium for this story because I think that it sensationalizes things and I think that the subtlety will be lost yeah. because so much of it is reflective for her and how do you reflect that in a film or television show? Do you have a voiceover being like, and then I realized in this moment, you know, um, or, or, you know, because you it's going to be, it would be hard. I mean, I'd be interested to see how they do it, but I don't necessarily think that it needs to be done.
1: Yeah, I, I hear you because I think that her process of writing this book is actually part of the story. It's part of the story. Right, so how would you put, I don't know how yeah. you would put that into TV or film of having, I mean, what do you have, like little cutscenes
0: of her writing? Like writing and then like her like thinking and like it's yeah. like my so-called life or something, like <laughs> yes. journaling. Right. I don't know. I just, and I also just don't think everything is a movie. I agree. Because I do think some books, I'm like, yo, that's a movie. Why is this a book? This is a movie. And then some books, I'm like, you know what? This is just a book. And if you don't read, you just miss this story. I don't know. But I, I'm also interested in the story getting told to more people because I think it's powerful and amazing. But I don't think it has to be this story. I think you could write a movie or a TV show that tells a similar story that is not her specific story and it could be great. Right. Um, the last thing, so I learned this from Dallas on our uh, second episode uh, where we talked about Exit West, but he's an English teacher and he is really big about talking about the title and okay. I literally never think about the title and I thought, shit, I should be thinking about the title. Like there's a reason the book's called something. So I so the book is called Men We Reaped and it comes from a quote um, by Harriet Tubman. So I'm going to read it to you and then you're just going to tell me kind of what you think. Okay. The quote, And the quote is also in, you know, the first part of the book after the intro page where it's like, quotes... And that's kind of like supposed to get your mind moving in that direction. There's mm-hmm. other quotes, but this is the first one. And it says, we saw the lightning and that was the guns. And then we heard the thunder and that was the big guns. And then we heard the rain falling and that was the blood falling. And when we came to get in the crops, it was dead men that we reaped.
1: Right. So I think that putting the title, putting, um, I'm sorry, naming the book, you know, after a uh, a a line from a quote from Harriet Tubman does a really interesting work. Um, I think that what Jessamine is trying to do in this book is to show us that these lives, her life, the life of her family members, the life of her friends, um, though they are individual lives with their own particularities, their own texture, their own sort of cadence, that these are lives that are also tied to, as we've been talking about, a, a long history of um devaluing black life mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um not only in the south but you know throughout the united states and arguably in many places around the world so i think that that's what the book is trying to do right mm-hmm. and i think that by calling harriet tubman into the book from the very beginning from the title mm-hmm. i think tries to do some of that right harriet tubman is a figure that we associate with slavery but also with freedom right sure. And I think that, um, you know, using this idea of the men that we reaped tries to bring us into that place, right? to ask us a question about how our lives today are continue to be impacted by the legacies of slavery, mm-hmm. how the sort of slow and incomplete unfolding of emancipation and freedom are still, you know that 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 process and that story is told. Through these lives, right, through the sort of scope of these lives, Mm -hmm. we we can continue to ask ourselves questions about the legacies of slavery Mm. and our efforts, you know, however fraught Mm -hmm. to to realize, you know, the sort of dream of black freedom that Mm. was uh, at the core of, you know, emancipation. I think that Jessamine is trying to signal to us from the beginning that this is the question of this right. book. This is the question. Yeah.
0: No, I think, I think you're hundred percent right. I really struggled. I didn't, I couldn't really quite figure out what she was doing, but as you say that, like the straddling between slavery and freedom, I think it's important. And I, I do think at the end of the book, she refers to, I think her her term is this, the Holocaust of slavery, Yeah. which I mean, Look, using the word Holocaust is, you know, it comes with a lot, and I think that it's deliberate when it's used. And I, I think as you, as you're talking about Harry Tubman and you're talking about drawing these parallels and whatever, that like, she uses it deliberately. She uses it deliberately, right. and it's a choice, and it is a powerful one. Right. Um. Okay. Before we get out of here, do you have anything else you want to talk about, or anything else you wanted to mention? Um.
1: No. I. I think I'm just. Uh you know grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you about this and really grateful to Jessman Ward for writing oh, yes. this beautiful book. I think, you know, she has opened herself up to us in a way that she didn't have to. Right. Right? I think that as important as it is that that these stories are told and and widely read, I think it is not um we need to be careful of expecting mm-hmm. that um black women, black men, you know, people of color, you know, that that people who are uh, marginalized and subjected to violence, like we need to be careful of expecting them to do the work for right, us, of right? Course. And of, of expecting that that people like Jessmine will be the ones who will right. um, bear the weight right. of sort of right. resolving these histories. And so I think it's really important to recognize that she has done an immense service right to all of us and that it's
0: really a generous gift yes and that we're we're lucky to get not just to get the story but also to get it from such an incredible writer who is you know yeah I have a little bit of a girl crush on her (laughs) I've watched a lot of videos on her since I finished the book I just I like her she's and she's so pretty and she's so smart and like you know it's kind of like can you you know I don't know, not be so lovely because I just love you. But then also, like, why not? Like be your best, loveliest self. Mm-hmm. Like live your best life, Jessmine. Like, ugh, I I do I agree. I feel so grateful. I'm so glad this book exists and that we got to read it and talk about it. And I'm so appreciative that you came on the show, Sarah. Thank you so, so much. And everybody else. Um, our next book is gonna be um James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. So that's going to be our next book. I will have a guest next week, uh, Chris Maddox, who is a writer. And then the following week, so I believe, what is that? May 2nd is next week, which makes the following week, just looking at my iCal, full disclosure, uh, May 9th. Also, I could have done the math, but like I'm a reader. I'm not a math person. So May 9th, we're going to be talking about Giovanni's Room with Chris Maddox. So please tune back in. I thank you guys so, so much for being here. And Sarah, of course, thank you for being here. And I will see you all in the stacks. All right, y'all, that's going to do it for us this week on The Stacks. Before we head out, I just wanted to remind you all to subscribe to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. Shows come out every Wednesday, but if you're subscribed, you'll never miss them. Also, um, if you listen to us on iTunes, please rate and review the show. It goes a long way. Next week, I will be here with Chris Maddox. We're going to be talking about all those delightfully bookish things. And then the following week, may 9th he and i will be discussing james baldwin's giovanni's room so go get your copy buy it or listen to it on audible and then come back and join us for this amazing discussion thank you again to sarah fong for being our guest for the last two weeks our graphic designer is robin mccrite our theme music is from Tegiragis, and the show the stacks was created and produced by me tracy thomas have an amazing week and i will see you all in the stacks